Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the Low Bar, where we drink and talk about true crime. I'm Jay, your bartender. Tonight, I'm drinking a 1911 cider from Beacon Skiff Orchards in Syracuse, New York. I used to pick apples at this orchard uh, when I was a little kid, and now they're not just open for apple picking season. They sell cider, they have a distillery, and apparently they now distribute all the way to Boston. Yay! It's amazing. Um, I didn't check to see if my local liquor superstore had the gin, uh, so the next time I'm out and about, I need to do that. Uh, their gin is just amazing, and I would drink it even if I wasn't helping a business from way back home. If you can get your hands on it and you like gin, you totally should, and they are not paying me to say that. I just really like the gin and their apples. Um, <laughs> it's doubly appropriate that I should be talking about booze tonight, because the victim in tonight's crime story was a bartender. Uh, her name was Kitty Genovese. She was a beautiful young woman, only 28 when she was killed in 1964. Um, her name has kind of become synonymous with what we call the bystander effect and with the cruelty of big cities. And some of that is justified and some of it is not. Um, there is so much more to the story of Kitty Genovese than just apathetic neighbors. I'd like to talk about it, but I do have to give a content warning. We will be talking about sexual and domestic violence. I won't be getting graphic because I don't think that it's necessary for our purposes. Um, some people might still have a difficult time just hearing about these topics, and I get that, so I'm just putting it out there that they're a necessary part of the story, and um, if you're not okay with hearing about that, I won't be offended if you decide that you're not up for it. Uh, however, if you are able and willing, let's go! I am tripping all over my own tongue today. Uh, Kitty Genovese was a manager at a bar not terribly far from where she lived in Kew Gardens, Queens. Uh, Kew Gardens had a reputation for being a nice middle-class neighborhood, kind of a little bit upscale, but not snooty, if that makes sense. Uh, it was supposedly a safe place, even in the middle of the big city. She had been born in Brooklyn, but her family fled for Connecticut uh, when Kitty was in her late teens. Um, she, uh, her mother had witnessed a murder, according to some sources, and the family decided to get out, get out of Dodge, which is understandable. You know, a lot of people were doing that at this point in America's history. Um, people who could get out of the big cities... Uh, white people in particular, made their way into the suburbs. Um, she lived with her partner, Marianne Zalanko, in a small but comfortable apartment. She had good relationships with her neighbors, uh, which she, like most people, most women in, in particular, uh, counted on as part of what kept her safe. Most people didn't know she was a lesbian. Uh, I certainly didn't know until I found an extremely detailed book about this case. Uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, homosexuality was, for lack of a better word, illegal uh, 
up until Stonewall, at the very least. Um, and that made a lot of things very difficult for people who are LGBTQ. Um, you know, you definitely had to hide that part of who you were if you didn't want to run in, if you didn't want to run into problems, uh, running the gamut from harassment to, uh, assault to arrest. Um, so that's going to play a role later in the story, but, um, we'll get there. On the night of March 12th, 1964, Kitty was out with some friends after work. She stayed out a bit later than usual, and she had planned to stay with a friend, but she ultimately decided that she wanted to go home. She seems not to have realized that she was being followed. As she got out of her car, a man attacked her. She did fight back. She was screaming for help the whole time. Uh, she screamed specifically that she had been stabbed. Lights went on in some of the apartments, both in her building and the building across the street, the Mowbray. One man yelled at the attacker to leave her alone. Another yelled at them both to knock it off. Kitty got up and staggered down the street, bleeding and still crying for help, until she made it to the entry to her building. She collapsed on the stairs, like in a vestibule type of space. Um... It has been suggested by later revisionists that she could not have been yelling very loudly due to the nature of her injuries. Um, for those of you who don't know, she, her lungs had been punctured in the back. So it's reasonable to assume that she, I mean, she did wind up suffocating, but we also know that people heard her screaming. So, um, this is a fact. This isn't in dispute. Um, she yelled for one of her friends who lived in the same building by name, and he did hear her. Uh, this friend did not come to help her. He didn't call police, uh, not for a while. He called a friend in if I remember correctly, it was Ithaca. It might have been Westchester County somewhere, but not anywhere in Queens, not in New York City, nowhere nearby. That friend, because they are a, a rational person, said, you know, call the police. Uh, he hung up on that friend and called someone who lived in a different part of that complex of buildings, uh, who also said to call the police. And eventually he did call the police, but it was too late. Um, in the meantime, the attacker had been frightened off by the original people telling him to knock it off. But he later said he realized that no one was going to do anything and he exchanged hats. I'm not sure why he exchanged his hats. Uh, followed the blood trail that Kitty had left behind her and went back to finish her off. He found her in the vestibule. He uh, stabbed her in the throat to stop her from screaming so much. Uh, sexually assaulted her and left it left her for dead. 
Um, according to him, he could see people looking out at from the hallway and into the vestibule where he was attacking Kitty. Um, but nobody did anything. Nobody intervened. Um, after the attacker left, an elderly resident um, held Kitty and tried to comfort her until an ambulance arrived. Um, another friend, I believe, held her hand. She was still alive when she was placed into the ambulance, and she did not survive the trip to the hospital. The attacker, for his part, was unhurried in his escape from Kew Gardens. Uh, according to him, and this is corroborated by the other person involved in this part of the story, uh, he stopped to wake, wake up a man who had fallen asleep in his car, his parked car, with the engine running. You know, he didn't want the man to suffocate from carbon monoxide poisoning. And then the attacker went home. He didn't want his wife to find him missing when she returned from her night job, from her job as a night shift nurse at the hospital. I've had a lot of people tell me that it is impossible to solve a truly random murder. Um, and I can definitely see where it would be difficult. The thing is, it might be a challenge, but it's not impossible because the New York Police Department did it in 1964. It didn't even take them long to do it. Initially, detectives were definitely stumped. Kitty was well-liked by everyone who knew her. Detectives expected to get a lot of cooperation from the neighborhood, too. After all, the Kew Gardens residents prided themselves on having a safe, you know, neighborhood, and surely they would want to keep it that way. It turns out that these upstanding citizens were even less willing to help police than the people in the most crime-ridden parts of New York. The building across the street employed actual elevator operators, like human beings that pushed the buttons for you. And the man on duty that night would have seen the whole thing. And as it turned out, he did see the whole thing. He stood there and watched. He refused to speak to police, not even to give his name, and had to be dragged to the precinct to even say that much. He definitely wasn't the kind of guy who could be relied upon to testify in court. Others weren't quite so dramatic, but stated pretty clearly that they had no interest in getting involved. They admitted that they hadn't contacted police because they didn't want to get involved. We'll get into that a little bit later, but process that for a moment. They heard someone shouting that they'd been stabbed, rolled over, turned out the lights, and went back to bed. Police weren't exactly impressed. They did manage to get a vague description. Height, approximate weight, I guess as to ethnicity, and the car he drove. Some people thought that he was dark-skinned white. Some people thought that he was light-skinned black. Um, as it turned out, he was light-skinned black. In the meantime, detectives in another area of town found a man breaking into a house. They'd been looking into a number of burglaries, so they asked him about those. Um, then he admitted to having committed some rapes, along with his burglaries. Then the detectives asked if he had killed anyone. 
We'll talk in a minute about false confessions, but the police were aware that false confessions are a thing. Um, this isn't just something that we've become aware of in the last five years. Police knew that this was a danger back in 1964, so they carefully questioned him about the murders that he was, in their minds, spontaneously confessing to, um, just to make sure that he wasn't one of those people who, you know, kind of confesses to every crime under the sun. Um, he confessed to two murders, uh, and he wound up correcting police on the cause of death for one of the victims. He said that he had shot the, the victim. Um, the cause of death on her death certificate was stabbing. Um, and he really argued for him having shot her, and they wound up having to exhume that victim because... He had details about the crime scene that nobody else had. Um, and it turned out that he was correct. He had, in fact, shot her, which was a big uh, black eye for the medical examiner. This man's name was Winston Mosley. Um, he was 29 years old. He was from Manhattan, although he had moved around a bit as his parents' marriage deteriorated. Uh, he got married for the first time as a young man, but his wife was unfaithful. And he could see the writing on the wall. He could tell that, um, you know, he could see himself falling, following in his parents' footsteps between him and his first wife. So he really didn't want that. He divorced his first wife and married again because... You know, not wanting to have a marriage like his parents had was certainly a reasonable decision. Um, he married again sometime later. Uh, the next wife's name was Betty, and she honestly sounds like a great person. She was, uh, her personality was a lot better suited to Winston's kind of introverted nature. The problem is that Mosley's parents were still trying to put him in the middle of their contentious marriage, which was becoming extremely volatile. Following a, a very harrowing incident, um, Winston seems to have had some kind of a break. He started drinking and breaking into people's homes. And, well, you know the rest. So... Winston did confess to the murder of Kitty Genovese. Um, he really only... He, he didn't know her. He selected her at random. And it was definitely his choice to... Um, you know, he only wanted to kill women. He had no interest in harming men. And, you know, even though if this were an episode of something that you saw in like a police procedural, you can definitely see kind of what set him off and, 
you can definitely see why he turned out the way that he did. It's not an excuse, you know, it's none of this is okay. I still end up feeling pretty bad for his wife and kids. Um, and I, I even kind of feel a little bit bad for him, not bad enough to excuse murdering three women, but, you know, I still feel kind of sad for him. Okay, so there was a trial. Uh, Mosley was only tried for the murder of Kitty Genovese. He pled not guilty by reason of insanity. Now, here's kind of the thing. I know that we've talked about this before. Um, a lot of people seem to want to try the insanity defense. That's a very popular defense. It's almost impossible to achieve. Um, you know, he, uh, he definitely had a lot of mental problems going on, but he clearly knew that what he was doing was wrong <laughs> and illegal. Um, he certainly couldn't demonstrate the level of insanity that such a defense requires. Um, and he was sentenced to death. He was never tried for the other murders. Uh, one of the murders um, had already had someone arrested and who had confessed to the crime. Um, that person recanted their confession after Mosley's confession. Um, and no one seemed to care. The other man, who was actually 17 at the time of the killing, was ultimately convicted of manslaughter. Um, this was He was probably not helped by Mosley's choice after confessing to invoke the Fifth Amendment. Um, authorities offered him immunity from prosecution for that crime if he would just tell what happened so that an innocent man wouldn't go to prison. But he insisted on invoking the fifth. You know, I mean, what were they going to do? Sentence him to death again? Really? Um, Mosley's death conviction was commuted to life in prison. Um, I'm not really sure why. I'm okay with it. Don't get me wrong. Um, but I'm not really sure what the justification was at the time. Um, but even after that, the death penalty was overturned in New York State, so it was all moot anyway. Um, Mosley was sent to Attica, Attica State Prison, um, which is out in western New York, for those of you who are unfamiliar with it. Uh, my own great-grandfather served time there, not at the same time, I don't believe. Um... While Mosley was there, he injured himself badly enough to get sent to a real hospital instead of the prison infirmary. Uh, I will spare you the details on that because it... <laughs> I don't even have words. But it was all part of a plan. You see, Mosley knew that he wasn't going to escape from Attica. 
but he could escape from a hospital. And he did. He overpowered his guard and escaped into the wilds of Buffalo, where he went on a crime spree that included rape, home invasion, hostage taking, and finally some intense negotiations and surrender to the FBI. I didn't even know that Buffalo had a field office, but they do. Um, he did participate in the Attica riots in 1971. I don't think that that's something that should be held against anyone, honestly. Um, he earned a college degree at Violet Attica. Um, he made an attempt to get a new trial in 1995 on the grounds of having incompetent counsel. Uh, one of the reasons he felt that his counsel was incompetent was because his primary attorney had actually represented Kitty Genovese in a minor gambling case in 1961. Now, that lawyer had represented a huge number of clients, some of whom did go on to be killed by people that that same lawyer represented Lair. Later, I think that was 12 that he counted that had happened to with no, um, no conflict of interest. Um, and this was a fact that was known to Mosley at the time. So, um, Mosley also claimed that Kitty used a racial slur against him when he attacked her, which, honestly, this didn't come up during the 1964 trial, um, but would also not have been remarked upon in 1964, even if it had happened. It sounds a little out of character for the way that Kitty was described by people who knew her, honestly. Um... At the same time, this is kind of a fraught situation. You know, I don't know too many people who are going to police their language when they're being raped and stabbed. Um, he alleged a forced confession. Uh, there were a large number of witnesses to this confession all of whom say that he was not coerced, he was not beaten, he was not tortured. Granted, these are all police officers who, um, as we've seen over the years, will say that a lot of the time. But his attorneys, nobody else who saw him, saw any sign of torture, any sign of pain, any sign of, you know, distress. During his bid to get a new trial, his defense attorneys also attempted to link Kitty Genovese and her family to the infamous Genovese crime family. I get that the defense attorney has to do whatever they can to save their client, but as a person of Italian descent, that's just so out there and so offensive and so repulsive. I just, I can't even. His defense... Fortunately, Mosley's request was denied. He applied for parole every two years, like clockwork, and he finally ended his days in the Clinton State Correctional Facility in Dannemora, New York. 
Um, you will hear more about that place and some of the people he appears to have kept company with in another episode, because that's actually really exciting. He died in 2016 at the age of 81. Mary Ann Zelanko, Kitty's partner, had a pretty rough go of it after Kitty's murder. She did eventually recover and find love again. She also got a master's degree in statistical analysis, which is pretty awesome. She never forgot the trauma and humiliation of her interrogation by police. Instead of asking her about people who might have taken too much interest in Kitty or had a grudge against Kitty, they asked a lot of detailed questions about what the two of them did in bed. This wasn't unusual for LGBTQ people dealing with the police, um, certainly at that time. At least they didn't arrest her. Uh, so the next time someone asks you why some folks don't want cops at Pride, you know, now you have an answer. Um, one of the most lasting things to come out of Kitty's murder was the emergence of the 911 system. One factor in some people's decision not to call police was what a royal pain in the ass it was. In those days, you either had to dial the operator and ask her to, to connect you to the police, which took a significant amount of time. Or you had to find the number for your nearest police precinct, which also took time. And you had to hope that you got the right one. Uh, by the late 1960s, New York City was starting to develop the 911 system we have today. It didn't spread everywhere right away. We didn't get it in Syracuse until 1992. But Kitty's death shone a bright, glaring light on the need for exactly that type of thing. I'm not saying anything bizarre, like her sacrifice saved countless lives or anything like that. She didn't make a sacrifice. A guy with serious family issues took out his rage and hatred for women on her. There's nothing noble in that, but her death did lead to this development. And more probably more proper to say the attention that her death versus the two women of color he had killed before her... Um, is what got that system implemented. All right, so the Kitty Genovese case is famous or infamous for the way that it showed bystander apathy. And yes, the way that people looked the other way and decided that this woman's murder was someone else's problem is pretty despicable. The night elevator operator at the apartment across the street watched the bulk of the attack, and then when she went into the building, he walked inside and went to the basement for a nap. At any point, he could have gotten to a phone and called for help. He could have also intervened for her. It took Kitty 45 minutes to die. A bandage could have saved her. The right kind of bandage, I get that, but... And this guy opted to go and have a nap. Other residents went on the record, either with police or with reporters after the fact, and this is one of the things that I kind of feel like you might need a content warning for. I certainly would have appreciated it. People told police why they didn't think it was their issue, and the reasons that they gave were chilling. I quote, at one point, I thought maybe a girl was being raped, but if she was out there alone at that hour, it served her right. 
Another quote, if that girl had been where she belongs, this never would have happened. Others thought that it was a lover's quarrel, that she was fighting with her man, and it wasn't their place to intervene if he had to knock her down. I had to put the book down and go do something else at that point, not because of these old archaic attitudes, but because I've heard them expressed even now. They admitted that they heard her say she had been stabbed, but they still felt her man had the right to do it? Are you kidding me? The older people thought that the young men should be the ones taking action. The younger people said that they hadn't heard anything, but if they had, they'd sure have gone and taken action, you know, if it had been the right thing to do, not interfering in a lover's quarrel that ended up with someone dead or something, I suppose. And of course, it was one of those older people who found the courage to at least go and comfort Kitty in her final moments. An older woman, to be precise, because none of these brave men could be found. Police at the time told a reporter from the New York Times that 38 witnesses had seen or heard something, but only one had bothered to call police, and that was only when it was too late. That wasn't precisely true. A father and son pair did call police early in the attack, but it was written off as a simple assault, and no one was ever dispatched. That son later became a police officer himself. Um, and has gone on the record several times to try to disprove this notion that nobody cared. The reporter involved later took a lot of flack about his story on the subject, uh, but he cited his sources, and they were very specific in the numbers that they gave. They were The police were beyond frustrated by what they saw in this neighborhood, and it cost them when it came to trial. There was a real possibility that the jury would be so angry at the do-nothing witnesses that they would let the killer walk. It had happened before. Um, the journalist I just mentioned went back to Kew Gardens ten years after the killing to do a report on how the crime scene had changed and how attitudes had changed, if they had, ten years on. Residents were full of righteous anger about the story and how they were presented. One wrote a furious letter to the editor, complaining about how bad a light the article showed on the area, without ever helping small businesses in the area by pointing out the nice shopping areas. I am not kidding. Studies were commissioned and performed. As early as 1968, the National Science Foundation commissioned a study on the behavior of crowds versus individuals in emergency situations. The study showed that if people witnessed an emergency situation while they are alone, 85% will help will step in and help. But if they're in a crowd or a group, they will only help 31% of the time. It's described as passing the buck. Basically, the idea is, I don't need to be the one to take care of it. Someone else will, and they'll probably be even more qualified. Um, in 1979, Harold Takushin conducted 490 separate trials across the United States and Canada to examine what we've come to see as the bystander effect, and he was specifically inspired by the Kitty Genovese case. In these trials, he and his team staged a theft, usually a car break-in. A staged police officer was placed nearby within obvious visual range. 11% of bystanders intervened in the theft. 3% of bystanders intervened in New York City, uh, despite a prominently placed police officer. Now, here's where I have issue with this study. 
Um, I'm obviously not seeing the study notes. I'm not seeing, you know, interviews with the unwitting participants later on. What I can tell you is this. I wouldn't be one of that 11%. No way. A car is property. Does it suck to have your car stolen? Yes. Especially if you're poor. It can be life-altering if you're poor. But it's still property. And in New York, it's insured. It had better be insured because that's the law. Encounters with police can be fatal for certain segments of the population. If there aren't lives at stake, I'm not going to go and snitch on someone like that. And I'm not going to encourage anybody else to do it either. If I'm sitting there and I hear someone screaming that she's been stabbed, yeah, that's worth the risk. I might tell the car thief there's a cop a block away. Does that count as intervening? You know, property is not worth someone's life. If someone's life is already at risk, then yeah, it's worth intervening. Another reason that the neighbors in the Kitty Genovese case some of them, anyway, didn't call police. Specifically, it was police attitudes and behavior. I'm not casting aspersions at the officers and detective who worked tirelessly in Kitty Genovese's case. Um, you know, I'm not Miss Back the Blue, but it's well documented how hard these detectives worked to find Kitty's killer. Um, yeah, I am casting aspersions at the way that they treated her, her partner, but, um, many of the neighbors said that they had called police before on other occasions for other issues, only to be rudely brushed off and, you know, kind of treated pretty shabbily. And I know not all cops and all that. And yes, I would rather have someone be rude to me than let someone bleed out and suffocate for 45 minutes. I wouldn't even wish that on, you know, I wouldn't wish the suffocating for 45 minutes on Winston Mosley, who did that to someone else. But the prior behavior of police did create an impediment in the minds of witnesses. Furthermore, we know that at least one of the people who ultimately did call police was gay. And we know that he agonized over the decision to do so because it put him specifically at risk. How? I don't understand, I guess. Like, I understand the frustration of police. I don't understand how they could not understand how they could just not get why no one was willing to talk to them. If so many people had good cause to fear them, and if they had so many bad experiences with so many other people. Um, and I bring this up not necessarily to bash police, But because this is something that keeps happening today, um, 
you know, the the Massachusetts Supreme Court ruled that it is perfectly reasonable for certain individuals to run from police on site. And that says something huge. Um, that says that there is a major problem and it is not on civilians to address this problem. Um, you know, if you want people to trust you, be someone trustworthy. Um, and again, yeah, I know, not all cops, but, you know, when you're wearing that uniform, you're representing everybody else who wears that uniform, and everybody else who wears that re uniform is representing you. So, think carefully about that. Um... Okay, so that's that's going to be it for me. I had a, a whole thing about not calling the police at a particular time for myself, but I don't know. It's kind of a weird statement, and I don't know. I'm not really sure that it has a place here. Um, this whole case really does get to me, because on the one hand... On the one hand, I can understand not wanting to involve police. Um, and more people did involve themselves, specifically the father and son, than people really think about. But at the same time, I mean, you know, all that it would have taken would have been one person going out to her aid. Just one. And she would have been... They could have saved her. Um, so yeah, it bothers me. It bothers me a lot. And, um... Yeah, there's obviously nothing that we can do about it now. But... You know, going forward, I think we can all remember what happened. Um, so that's a wrap for me. I'm going to go grab another cider. And uh, you all have a safe week, and I will see you next week. Mm -hmm.